Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular costs of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we are joined by Niels Rege, co-founder and managing director of Apollo Health Ventures, whose portfolio consists of innovative biotechnology and health tech companies developing interventions with the potential to prevent or reverse age-related diseases and extend healthy human lifespan. The firm was created in 2016 and is currently investing out of its second fund with 157 million euro in capital. Niels, thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Our guests in Translating Aging have a pretty diverse variety of backgrounds, from business to biochemistry. Before co-founding Apollo, you had deep experience in internet marketing, e-commerce, and then venture capital, including exposure to the B2B software and personal finance spaces. What inspired you to move into longevity and neuroscience? So I had a couple of companies, tech marketplaces, but also recruiting companies, so very different industries. And the the one thing I always did is I co-founded those businesses. So I'm really an entrepreneur. I, I like their early days of of companies putting great teams together and all these things. And then in 2017 was a lucky year for me. So I sold three companies and I thought, what's the next big thing? And and I think two things came together there. First of all, the the opportunity and then also the passion. I'm starting with the opportunity. You know, with the, with the internet, I started very early. I think the, the first company I, I founded was in 2007. And basically the internet was wide open, right? So people started selling things online and marketplaces for real estate and other things were, were created. But if you look at the internet today, I think the, the biggest opportunities have been taken. It's still growing, but the biggest spots have been taken. But still a lot of money is flowing into, into the whole tech scene. I, I thought, what's the next thing? We started looking at gene therapy. I was pretty excited about it, but then selfishly realized that it's a long way that one could potentially edit genes of living people, right? So I think it's fairly easy. You could edit an embryo or change something there that changed the APOE gene that it has a very low chance of getting Alzheimer's and all these things. But in living humans, the big issue is the, is the delivery. And then also the question is, where do you want to deliver what and side effects and all those things. And why was I excited is, was already the theme of longevity. I read about all these SNPs and, and genes and which ones are good and bad. And just the, the vision of changing something that makes you live longer, healthier, was quite appealing. But yeah, again, gene therapy, a lot of money went into it and it wasn't the big thing. But then I also started looking at other things and I was asking myself, what is actually working in terms of longevity? And then found things like rapamycin and other things and was super surprised that there are those molecules that prolong healthy lifespan in animals, but nobody's really working on applying that to humans. So kind of saw the opportunity there. And obviously the market is huge. If you have something that makes you live 10 years, 20 years longer, healthier, I think it's the biggest market ever. From the tech side, I was very much used to fundraising, big funding rounds, etc raising money and all these things. And I just couldn't believe how little money is invested into these things. So that's when we started with our first 
deal by deal fund where we saw that opportunity with that company that's developing a selective mTORC1 inhibitor. So based on rapamycin, trying to build a version where you can dose it higher to get the full benefits from rapa. So really, uh, I mean, I think rapamycin is the lowest hanging fruit. Most of people already know about it, but it was just mind-blowing that nobody's working on that. So we found that company from the Buck Institute and then all the tools I had from the past with spinning something out, trying to create a good cap table where, with good management incentives and everything. We, we did all that and then uh, we put in the money there, a lot of money from me, but also from a couple of friends and business partners I've worked with in the past that trusted me. And later on, we brought in two life science VCs into that company so that it's properly funded and really can go into human clinical trials. Well, that gives me a really clear sense of where you were coming from. As you look forward into the direction that you were moving and thinking now about your background, what kinds of adaptation did you know you would have to undergo in order to move into this new sector? I've been involved in a couple of businesses where it was really about scaling and execution. Uh, life sciences is a bit different there. It's more about strategy and really thinking things through and maybe let it sink in for a week or two and then discuss with other people and getting more opinions, <laughs> which in some other businesses, you know, wasn't quite the case where it was just about going forward and, and, and growing, right? So I think that's different, but I like it a lot, I must say. And then obviously uh, for, for the decisions, we have a very big team of people with different backgrounds, some with chemistry, biology, molecular biology, biochemistry, VC, etc. So when we discuss those things, everybody has his own opinion, but ultimately we're looking for those things where we get a bunch of thumbs up for something that's that's really working, right? So, and then then we move ahead. So, I mean, the, the things where that I can apply well from the past, I think I'm pretty good at statistics. I can, I can read studies now and um, can really judge if something is a proper study or just something where a professor just needs a publication, right? So, and then we, we look at everything with, with a big team and uh, try to get consensus on things. Let's move now from thinking about the sector to thinking about companies. So what's special about Longevity Biotech from an investment standpoint? Obviously, it's an important topic, but what I'm aiming at is, do the portfolio companies that are involved have unique needs that influence how you invest or interact with them? as distinct from other kinds of life science companies? Yeah. So, I mean, we're really science-driven, especially this fund is based on what's actually working, right? So what's working in animals and how can we translate that to humans? Because this is stuff that hasn't been done before or in a not well enough funded way that you really get to those clinical trials where you can see if something's working or not. And it was really a big motivation for me to, to get this going because there are things where I just, you know, for myself also mm -hmm. can't believe that, you know, I'm getting older and these things haven't been tested, even though they look so promising. <laughs> so this is really the theme of this fund is doing these things. And then uh, with our fund, we do two things. We do company creation, but we also invest in, in outside companies. A couple of those things that we have started are company creations of these molecules where we really want to see if something is working as well in humans as it is in, in animals. Let me ask a pretty basic question, actually, about how, how the fund comes together. I think that some of our audience has some sense of how venture capital works, 
but many of our listeners are closer to the lab bench than the boardroom. And I thought it might be kind of fun to talk about how a firm like Apollo metabolizes money, how it brings it in and how it distributes it. So take us through it. So what I imagine is you start by saying, we're going to raise a fund and it has this general focus. We want interventions that can significantly improve the quality of life today by targeting the features of aging. What happens then? I mean, I imagine you make a lot of phone calls and take a lot of meetings, but tell me what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. So in biotech, you basically have two models, right? You either start a, uh, what people call a disco model where you, let's say, I, I just use round numbers, right? You raise, let's say 50 million on a hundred million pre, and then you have 50 million to spend. The investors would own 30% of that, but one third of that mm -hmm. company because it's uh, 50 out of 150. Ultimately, mm -hmm. we thought about which model we want to use for us and what's the best, what we think is the best model. In the long run, we decided to go for a fund model, which is a little bit different. So in a fund model, you would raise, let's say, 150, and then we are just managing the money for the investors. So we have investors that, let's say, a couple put in 1 million, some other put in 10 million, and we end up at, a, at, at 150 or a bit more, but let's stay with 150. We get a small management fee from that, 2% per year, which if you have a big fund, this can be a lot of money. But I mean, we have a big team. So that's the salary of our team. And we, we build the companies with, with them. And then in case something is successful or the whole fund is successful. So first of all, we have to, you know, really have to make money and return that to the investors. And then let's say we make 3x with the fund, then... We're at 450, 450 net return. So after we've paid the fees, so it's probably almost a, almost a 4X that we have to do from the money we get because we also have to pay the management fee that I just mentioned. So assuming we end up returning 450 to the investors, then in, in venture funds, you get a carry, which is 20%, 25%, 30%, depending on the fund that you get as an incentive, but you only get that when you really return that money to the investors. And that's for the exceeding money, for the for the money you made for the investors. So 450 minus 150, we would get 20, 25, 30% out of, out of the 300, and then we'll distribute that to the team. And that takes a very long time to get there because you basically would have to sell every company to really get to that point or have some early super big exits to, to get to that point. However, as we just did the math, I think it's easier for investors to make money with that model because in the other model, you have to return much more that the investors are actually making money. So that's why we decided to, to go for that model because the investors own everything and not only one third, because we are in this for the long run. We want to make investors money. We want to show the investors that this is a good place to invest or a good space to invest. And then ultimately, we want to be able to raise more money from other bigger institutional investors. So that's, you know, our motivation right now is really making money for the investors so we can deploy more money to the space. That provides so much insight into the way that you're thinking about money and metabolizing it, if you will, from the investor standpoint and from the perspective of your team. Now I'd like to move into how that money ends up helping companies be created and how it helps them evolve. So my understanding is, but you are assembling and co-founding your portfolio companies. You're, you're not going out. You are to some extent finding companies that already exist and are seeking funding, but you're also going out and, and recruiting talent at various times and then co-founding the companies with those principles. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. 
And that's, a, you know, people call it the Boston biotech model. A lot of those funds on the East Coast pursue that model because you have a very high risk at the beginning, right? So you have to be realistic, even if it's very compelling for just something new. You can't go out and raise on a 50 or 100 million pre just based on the story as people did in tech. But here, everything is risky. So we come in at nominal cost or at very low valuations. Then we put a lot of money to work. And what we typically do is we run killer experiments, right? So we have a thesis and then we think about what's the most likely way that this company could potentially fail. And then we try to run that experiment mm. first. So if something then fails, we can kill the company early, but we haven't put that much money in. And those killer experiments and putting the company together and uh, building a good execution plan and running, you know, working with a couple of CROs, it takes a lot of time to put these things together and then execute on the companies. But if the killer experiment goes right, then we think we really have something that can also excite other investors. So that's really, you know, how we execute in the early days. And then typically we would put in two to five million very early on. Sometimes we just run killer experiments that cost 500K. We have some cases where we, you know, see data and we think it's just too good to be true. And we would just repeat the data and let's say also check for toxicity. Toxicity is often a problem in, mm -hmm. in, in biopharma. And then if everything comes back clean and, and positive, then we would put in more money because we're pretty convinced that the company will be successful in the long run. In this killer experiment approach, what are you looking for when you're looking for your co-founders other than a strong stomach, obviously? Sometimes we even do that with our in-house team. Sometimes we bring in people that manage two or three of our companies because we don't want them to be incentivized to be too positive. So we may have a person that's running two or three killer experiments, and then he should tell us if he's not excited about one company, right? Founders are always excited about a company, but with the things we build in-house, we sometimes have those models where we, where we have one venture partner running two or three of those experiments, and then he's getting so busy that he wants to cut one thing off, which is good for us because we want to just focus on the ones that work the best. So it's a very very different model than those super driven founders, which we would then bring in at a later stage. So typically in biotech, the very great experienced CEOs you typically bring in at a series A stage where they know the company is equipped with enough money, it's de-risked, and now it's really about running the clinical trials and then potentially cross around to, to IPO. This is such a powerful concept that I want to I want to stay with it for a little while. You were just saying that you want to create very early on an incentive structure and an organizational structure that encourages the right kind of skepticism, that you almost want to avoid a certain kind of optimism early on in favor of the kind of skepticism that makes sure that you don't pursue and devote resources to bad ideas. Am I getting that about right? Exactly, exactly. But I mean, keep in mind, we are very excited about the space, but we don't want to be overexcited about everything, right? So right. we're very excited if we even start something like this, if we start a company with a killer experiment, we need, there is already very good excitement on our end and we see so many things. So there is a high bar even for that. But then ultimately in the long run, you're totally right. 
I, I think that's so important in longevity because although it's not like tech where, you know, if you have a laptop and a dream, you can basically pitch a new idea for a company. There has to be some scientific evidentiary basis for an idea in longevity biotech. But because of the excitement in the field and the kind of what I, what I think of as the true believer phenomenon, I think we are vulnerable to a little bit of hype. And I think that it's a very good idea to bring that down to earth and say, okay, that's a good idea. Let us figure out the best way to see if it's going to fail and do that first. And that way you filter for good ideas. And you're also being very efficient about the way that you allot economic resources. And I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Exactly. You're saying it's totally right. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> as, as good as you did. <laughs> Repetition is one way that I make sure I'm understanding because this, these are pretty complicated concepts and some of them are new to me even in the course of a given interview. So uh, thanks for bearing with me while I, while I went over that and, and thought out loud a bit. Let's stay with the idea of the sector and the kind of companies that you want to develop. Is Apollo looking for companies that are going to jump in and treat aging directly? If thinking 10, 20 years ahead, and if there is infinite money in the space, we may do so. But currently, we're obviously, those trials are too expensive to run. Um, I always you know, say you would have to have 500 or 1,065 heroes. You would have to follow them for five or 10 years in order to see if there is a longevity effect or not. So the first clinical trial we will typically run is a stepping stone disease. So, I mean, obviously we do a phase one. In the phase one, we would love to see biomarkers that people are getting healthier. And I think there is a, there are some good initiatives also from us, but also from others to defining those biomarkers. So you can even see in a phase one or in a phase two, phase one may be too short, but maybe in a phase two, to see if somebody's really getting healthier with the drugs or treatments somebody's getting. However, the market we're going for first would be a traditional disease, could be an orphan rare disease or something a bit bigger like a neuro disease, but it would be a stepping stone disease, right? So first of all, it's about getting a drug to the market. That's the most important thing and making sure it's safe and that it's working. And then what comes after that you know, assuming somebody has a drug that's working for neuro, then people could think about running a longevity trial for that drug. So, and we would hope that for the things we're developing, there is a market for running such a bigger trial in the long run. But for the duration of our fund and everything, we go for the stepping stone disease. And that's, that's exactly the kind of approach that, that BioAge is taking as well. You know, we're looking for mechanisms of aging that can be manipulated in order to treat diseases with well-defined patient populations and obvious regulatory path to markets. And the idea being that once we have a drug that has reached approval for a disease of aging, we will have already brought some patient benefit and that will continue to expand. But then in the future, we can start thinking about looking at how these drugs interact with the aging process itself. And that does sound like a kind of common theme among many of the big players in, in longevity biotech right now. How many companies are in the Apollo Nest right now? I think we have 12, maybe one more or less, but 12. I think <laughs> it's the right number, right? It's like how small of a killer experiment, what you call a company, right? So that's always the question we're asking us, right? If you call something company or not, but 12 is the 12 is kind of the number. I see you have some things that are basically proto companies that if the, ex the killer experiment goes a certain way, then that will definitely be a company. But now it's just one aspect of one of your team members portfolios that they're overseeing and we're not yet sure 
whether things are going to work out yet. And so that's why you said, you know, plus or minus one. Yeah. Okay. So I know we don't have time to cover all of them, but could you just maybe pick a couple that you're particularly excited about today and, and, and tell us about them? I could tell about a few maybe lower hanging fruits. So one thing, kind of like rapamycin, where everybody's very optimistic, we looked at what's working in the ITP interventions testing program, which is the most robust, most solid model for seeing what works in a mouse or what, what doesn't. And there's only a handful of things that are actually working. Rapamycin, some diabetes drugs like SGLT2 inhibitors, ACABOs, but also 17-alpha estradiol. And as far as I know, um, nobody's really going after that. Um, it unfortunately only works in males, but females are living also longer anyways. So there is some benefit also for males from that non-feminizing estrogen. And we're trying to unpack what's going on there and build something around that. Mm. Then we have uh, something what I believe is is will be coming is everybody has his own stack of things that people are taking. So we have one company where we have a combination of things where we see great data and we want to prove that this combination is working. Then we have a long non-coding RNA with, with higher therapeutics, which can be a big thing, looking very promising. We have a senescent cell company. So basically everything where one can be pretty confident that if it's safe, that there is a good effect because it has been shown in, in many animals. And then maybe also worth mentioning is our autophagy company, where we started with phenotypic screen. The company is called Samsara Therapeutics. Well, we started with a phenotypic screen and just looking what upregulates autophagy, screened tens of thousands of compounds and then narrowed it down to three compounds at the moment. There will be maybe a few new ones coming up in the future. Everything we see is looking pretty promising, I would say. Pretty, pretty promising in terms of neuroprotection and other effects. So we're looking to going into the clinic with one of the compounds probably in the next 12 to 18 months as well. Okay, that was going to be my next question is uh, what's the time horizon on, on clinical trials? But you're saying a year, year and a half in the first one? That's a year and a year and a half. And then a couple of others are coming following up that. Oh, exciting. Well, we're going to have to talk again in a year and a half. As your companies evolve and grow, their needs expand in terms of financial resources. And is the Apollo plan to continue to invest from your managed funds as the companies grow? or just to have them seek outside investment or some combination of both? Yeah, some combination of both. For every company, we have still a good amount of reserves. So we haven't invested that much of the fund so far. We, we have a lot of reserves for the companies. But every company is supposed to be built in a way that we can easily get in outside investors as well. I know you're based in Europe. Are, are most of your companies based there or some of them based in the U.S.? Most of them are actually, we, we start them in the U.S. and then also with the U.S. management team. Obviously, for follow-on reasons, we have a great team here, a couple of Germans in the team. Everybody's working very hard, what Germans are known for. <laughs> Still, the company is, the U.S. is known for innovation and everything. So obviously, there is much more follow-on money in the U.S. So we would build those companies in a way where we have U.S. management, U.S. inks, that people can invest in these companies because sadly there isn't that much venture money for life sciences in, in Germany or in Europe. The US is much further advanced there. 
Having said that, there's great science here in Europe, right? So, I mean, the universities are great. The people are smart. They're just not as entrepreneurial as they are in the, in the U.S. So we would sometimes pick up science from, from here in, in Europe and then still build a U.S. company out of that. As we approach the end of our conversation, I want to broaden the conversation and speak in generalities. And here I'm really just looking for your perspective. What do you think the biggest challenges for the longevity field will be over the next five to 10 years? I would say at the moment, we, we, we see a couple or a bunch of very interesting things. So I hope the market will bounce a little bit back. And I think funding is something that's needed for the space. If there is sufficient funding, I hope there will be some funding moving over from, from tech to bio, particularly to longevity biotech. There's a very good chance that we'll have a bunch of companies have something on the market that that actually works. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic, super exciting time to be in and it's still relatively small field, I would say, compared to tech, let's say. But funding is something I would say is something that's really needed. I mean, there's so many companies hoping to have something in the clinic, in patients, in that time zone. And I think that that could really, once we have a few successes, I think that might bring in the funding that you're talking about. Because, you know, once one person has a win with a longevity biotech play, it'll no longer be all potential. It'll be demonstrated proof of principle. And I think the money will flood in. But in the meantime, you know, in that next five years, we could definitely, we could use a little bit of a boost in terms of the funding environment. I agree. So that's a big challenge for us over the next, over the next five to 10 years. Let's make it a little bit more specific. What's next for Apollo? How do you see your firm evolving over the next few years? We want to bring drugs into the clinic. Obviously, we want to have some successes there. We want to be very rigorous in terms of what we bring to the clinic, because obviously that's pretty costly to, to run those clinical trials. And then ideally be in a position where we can, you know, we have more money under management and also finance other companies where we think they have something very exciting to bring to the clinic. Because when we started a couple of years ago, everybody had those concepts and ideas, but now I think things have changed, right? So people have worked on those concepts and ideas and developed better molecules and new molecules and everything. So I think there will be some very exciting opportunities also for, you know, those series A, B, C rounds. Fantastic. Niels Rege of Apollo Health Ventures, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. That was fun. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Transiting Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast.bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at BioAge Podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.